We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right, I have the immense joy and privilege of inviting Kirk Metzger to come up. Kirk, where are you, brother? There he is. Uh, Kirk, yeah, come on up. Kirk is going to be delivering God's word to us today. And as you know, uh, a few weeks back, Kirk is one of the three men that we introduced to you uh, as an elder candidate. And as part of the candidacy for eldership, uh, what we want to do is we want to give these three men an opportunity to stand before you and address you through God's word and uh, let you experience the joy of hearing them teach and preach and instruct you and be encouraged by them. Uh, so in, in just a moment, I'm going to hand it off to Kirk. Before I do that, I want to pray for him. So would you bow your head with me and join me in this prayer? Lord, I thank you for your servant, Kirk. God, I thank you for uh, his diligence in preparing for this moment, uh, his faithfulness uh, in his study, and in thinking uh, deep thoughts about this passage of Scripture that he's going to bring to us. Lord, we've been praying for him. And Lord, we continue to pray for him uh, as he brings your word to us now. Lord, would you fill him with your spirit? Would you uh, cause your word to just overflow from him, Lord? And God, make us ready and willing recipients of your word today, Lord. Give us receptive and responsive hearts. Let the, the seed of your word, as it's scattered, Lord, we pray that it would find good soil in us today, God. And uh, so, Lord, would you speak now for your servants are listening. Lord, we wish to see Jesus. So through this man, through this text of Scripture, in this moment, would you show us the grace, glory, and goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tyler. Brothers and sisters from Emmaus, it's good to be with you on another Lord's Day gathering. If you're visiting our gathering today, yeah, my name is Kirk Metzger. I'm an elder candidate here. And part of that process uh, involves uh, being uh, apt to teach from the Bible, so the joy of bringing God's Word to you today. I hope that I'm not uh, only found to be qualified in that way, but more than that, that you all are edified by the Scriptures and delighted in our God's love for His people. So after having two weeks away from our series in 1 Timothy, we will return to the letter today, continue talking about the household of God. Today we'll be reading the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. So as you find 1 Timothy 5.17, you'll see that we're entering into a passage that has shown us how to live as a family. Verses 1 through 2, they showed us how to live as a family, really with, with one another. These verses taught that we ought to view one another as family. Because the reality is, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So this here, this is our family, the ones who Christ purchased with his blood and adopted as sons and daughters. Therefore, we must be careful with how we use our words with one another. For those that are older than us in our family, we ought to treat them as we would treat our fathers and our mothers, with encouragement and with honor. For those that are younger than us, we ought to treat them as we would our brothers and sisters, with all purity and love. When we see each other with, with these lenses, we know we can train each other in godliness. Then verses 3 through 16, 
is dedicated to caring for the needy, the needy ones in our family, namely widows. Caring for the needy looks like using the word honor. And the last time we were in this passage, Pastor Patrick showed that the main theme of really this whole chapter is that word honor. This can also be translated support, and you might see that in your Bibles. But really that means those that are worthy of of compensation, that word honor. One of the takeaways from those verses regarding widows is that we need to be a people that live with, with radical generosity so that we can take care of the needy and the worthy ones in our family. So this summary brings us up to speed in our scripture for today. So let's read from 1 Timothy 5.17, and I'll read through chapter 6, verse 2. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. This is the word of the Lord. I believe that this passage has the main idea of teaching us how to live honorably. We'll first be instructed on how to live honorably with elders, and then we'll see how to live honorably with other authorities. Now, I know that authority is not the the easiest topic to address these days. After seeing scandals among politicians, uh, megachurch leaders, you might be skeptical of anyone who's in authority. Hope that you'll see today there's ultimately one who is in authority and that he has given instructions on how to live with the authorities that he has put in our lives. And that this order, this authority, is actually good for us and God-glorifying. So as a general outline, we will focus on how to honor elders in chapter 5, and the portion of chapter 6 that we will read will focus on how to honor those in authority. So let's begin by looking at verses 17 and 18. Part of how Timothy is to put things in order at this church in Ephesus is to honor those elders who rule well. They should be considered worthy of double honor, he says. So here that word honor is brought back to the forefront of our minds. This word is the same one used back in verse 3 when Paul was talking about taking care of the widows of the church. So in this section, we can take what we know of the word honor and apply it to our elders. To show double honor means showing respect to elders who lead well, and it also means compensating those elders who lead well. 
Our elders lead us well and praise the Lord that he has given us men as under shepherds to lead us into all truth by preaching and teaching the Bible. Now, the Bible, it often calls us believers sheep. So we are all sheep, the flock of God. He has not only chosen us as his sheep, but he has chosen for us leaders or under shepherds to feed us what we need for sustainment. So we all need to be clear to hear the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. So it follows that sheep who are cared for and rightly fed, they show honor for their shepherds by giving them the respect that they are due. Along with that respect, we can show, uh, honor, show honor towards them by giving with radical generosity so they can focus on caring for us rather than being burdened financially. I want shepherds that are freely able to gaze upon the beauty of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be able to preach and teach the scriptures even better if they are not bogged down with financial burdens they don't need to have. Emmaus, you have done an incredible job of showing honor towards Tyler and demonstrating that you want to care for him and his family. So hear me as a brother, simply exhorting you to continue in this good work. Let's continue to meet the needs of our elders so that they are not distracted from their calling to feed the flock of God among them with the word of God. If you're still not convinced, though, that it's worthwhile to invest our money into the elders who rule well, consider what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So these men, they have aspired to the office of elder, of which they will have to give an account on the last day standing before our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's help them do this noble task with all joy. This verse in Hebrews said it would actually be advantageous for us if we did so. So let's submit to the word of God and give generously so our under-shepherds may care for our souls with all joy. Going back to 1 Timothy 5, Paul knows there will be questions about why the church should pay her elders. And he addresses that why question in verse 18 quite simply. So really, he just simply quotes scripture. First, he quotes an Old Testament verse, and second, he quotes Jesus directly. Paul uses the Old Testament quotation to help identify the long-standing tradition and command of paying workers a fair wage. This Old Testament verse also gives us a picture of how the farmers at that time, how they kind of paid their workers. So they gave bites of grain to these hard-working ox, that, that way they could have some of the grain uh, that they were grinding as they were working. The farmers of that day, they wanted to reward the labors of the hard-working oxen by sustaining their energy as they did the work. However, it's not oxen that these scriptures are most concerned with. Instead, our God spoke this verse for our sake. Paul makes this argument with the same Old Testament verse in 1 Corinthians 9 to prove that paying our elders for ruling well is not a man-made idea. He states in verse 9 of that chapter, saying, If we have sown spiritual things among you, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? So while Paul himself often worked hard at his, his own trade and then labored freely in his preaching and teaching of the scriptures, he insisted that this manner of laboring did not have to be replicated. Instead, he made a concerted effort to state that the church should pay the leaders that rule well. If Paul, quoting from the written scriptures, was not enough, here he is giving a direct quote from Jesus that shows workers deserve their wages. Now, I'm guessing that you yourself uh, find yourself deserving of the wages that you work for at your jobs. Since our elders are working spiritual things for our sake, let's repay them with the double honor that they're due. These verses show us the, the first method, really, for how we honor our elders, and that is by showing them respect and giving them their due compensation. This respect, it can look like uh, submitting to their leadership, praying for them to be patient with us as we all make our pilgrimage to our everlasting home, and giving them words of encouragement for a task that holds really very little evident of evidence of immediate fruit. Think back to uh, verse, um, the, the verse in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about our elders sowing spiritual things. That comes along with the long-term view of seeing godliness grow in an individual and also as our whole corporate body. Many of our jobs, you can see somewhat an immediate effect for the work that you've done, right? So for me, for example, I can see a formula go into a spreadsheet and it's working. I can quickly put it into a visualization and it's done. For others of us, you might see the intricacies of walls, of flooring and wiring all coming together to kind of build a house. Others, you, uh, you attend to patients' needs. You clean their teeth, you give them a brace they might need to fix their bones, you adjust their back, etc. My point is that our elders can use all the encouragement in the world to continue in their task of preaching and teaching the scriptures. This is a long view that they are taking. Tell them how their teaching impacted your life that week and how you saw the goodness of Christ. Or how the discussion surrounding the scripture for the week brought about confession in your community group and that you've seen godly fruit being born during that time. These are all little bits of encouragement that can keep your elders working hard with all joy. Additionally, supporting your elders that rule well looks like giving to our church with radical generosity. So let me just say, if you're a visitor or if you've been visiting for a time and you're still trying to discern whether or not to become members with us, this statement is not really directed toward you. However, as a fellow member of Emmaus, it is a responsibility to give generously to our church for many reasons. Uh, ministry funding for kids, for, for hospitality, for Bible studies, and the like. But it's also so that we can give materially and care for our elders for the spiritual good that they do for us. So again, this first method for how we honor our elders by showing them respect and giving them compensation. So let's move forward by looking at verses 19 through 20. Here we are reminded of the importance of having order in place for when elders do not fulfill their leadership well. That is, when they are sinning in their authoritative office. Verse 19 is referring back to another Old Testament passage where it talks about receiving charges or accusations only on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This careful process about reviewing charges of sin 
has been the case for God's people for a very, very long time. So this brief orderly account uh, reminds us that elders are humans just like us. First and foremost, our elders, our brothers, and fellow members of this church. And what are members supposed to do for one another? Members are supposed to work with one another towards sanctification, which means we all have to bear with each other on acknowledging and killing sinful flesh that remains with us while we aim to live with the Spirit. However, since our elders are worthy of double honor, we need to be extremely careful with charges of sin towards our leaders. Pastors need our correction and encouragement to follow the scriptures just like we do. Just as we all should receive those words of correction with humility, we would expect the same from our elders. So these verses address elders who are sinning in such a short space because the scriptures, they've really already laid out for us how to approach this sin issue. First, it's laid out in the Old Testament, just as Paul alluded to, by having evidence of two or three witnesses. And then again, the New Testament, when it comes to dealing with charges of sin in the church. So Matthew 18 is, is really the orderly way that the church approaches someone who is in sin, no matter if they are a member or if they are a member who happens to hold an office, like that of elder or deacon. So let's frame Paul's specific exhortation about elders who are in sin by recalling the order of addressing brothers and sisters who sin against you. So first, if your brother or sister sins against you, you go and tell them the fault by yourself. This manner of approaching someone needs to be done in humility and with demonstrations of love and grace for the person who sinned against you. Now, if for some reason that person does not listen to the charges, you need to then take one or two others along with you so that charges might be established by their evidence. And again, if someone refuses to accept these charges of sin, as sad as that is, these two or three witnesses must then take it to the church. If they're still unresponsive to the charges of sin, they are voted out of the church because the Lord has given us the authority to show people if they are bearing fruit for the Lord or if they are dying in their sinful flesh. This scripture says that we are to treat them as one who is really not a brother or sister in Christ. They are to be treated like an outsider as we plead for them to respond in repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Really, this mutual benefit of working with one another towards sanctification is such a gift of church membership. We're being conformed more and more into the image of the Son by our brothers and sisters who have been adopted by God because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice for our sins and raising to life for our justification. His Holy Spirit works within each of us to exhort, correct, and love one another. So again, Matthew 18 is really the framework in which we can view Paul's short sentences here about elders being accused of sin. Paul also alludes to the necessity of establishing evidence of sin by two or three witnesses in 2 Corinthians 13. This basis of finding evidence of sin is paramount in honoring one another. So when it comes to elders being in view here in 1 Timothy 5.19, I believe that we are being told that we must be careful when it comes to accusation of sin against elders. After all, we did just see that they are the ones who rule well, then they are worthy of double honor. So if there is an accusation of sin brought against a pastor, we had better be extremely discerning. 
Here's the thing. If an elder is ruling well by guarding the flock of God among us, by defending the scriptures and defending right doctrine, they are going to be at some point wrongfully accused of sin because they were being faithful to the noble task and someone didn't like it. Emmaus, it's extremely important that our pastors remain holy. It's extremely important also that we be desiring their holiness by working with them for their sanctification. Let's be clear, Satan would love to see our pastors be in sin because it ruins the credibility of the teaching and therefore limits the desire for some to join the church. And how can anyone blame them at that point? Why do they want to willingly submit themselves to hypocritical leaders that act just like the rest of the world? So, if there is an accusation of sinning elders, I'd ask you to do two things. One, make sure the sin has been brought up with the elder individually. Bottom line, that's the first thing that we're called to do according to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must be wise with our words, and if the person has not brought it up to the elder, you stop that conversation, you point them to Scripture, and point them towards that elder. Second, be careful. This verse is telling us to admit charges only on the fact that there are two or three witnesses. This does not mean that others have simply just heard about this situation, but that witnesses have been present for this sin. The bar for this kind of sinning should be pretty high. So be careful what kind of accusation is being brought. Really, what's being viewed here in verse 19 is that second step of church discipline that is outlined in Matthew 18. And we shouldn't be hoping to take our elders to the step of church discipline, but instead pray for soft hearts in both the pastor and the one who's uh, bringing that charge of sin. We want our pastors to be holy, but we don't want to beat them down with public accusations of sin. So encourage and exhort them, but be careful in bringing a public charge of sin against them. We should be careful to bring a public charge of sin against elders because verse 20 shows that if they have been in this second step of church discipline and are carefully found to continually be sinning, they will be brought to this third stage of public discipline before the church so that godly fear might be put into the rest of the elders. Now, I'll openly admit here that in verse 20, it can be difficult to understand. It's particularly tricky with the phrase, as for those who persist in sin. You have to ask yourself, is this particular phrase, is it referring to those that bring a false accusation of sin against elders? Or is this phrase referring to elders who are continually sinning? I believe that this phrase in verse 20, it does tie back to elders who are in sin, as they seem to be the main topic here in 1 Timothy 5. So I'd need more evidence to kind of persuade me otherwise, saying this is really talking about those that bring false accusations and are suddenly being swept in a public discipline. Our God, he is very wise to include instruction in his written word to tell us how to handle those in authority that sin against the people of God. He knows there will be times where elders do wrong, and he has given us broad instruction in Matthew 18 and more concise, more focused instruction here in 1 Timothy about how to handle those elders that are in sin. So with authority coming into question over the past several years, I hope this portion of the scripture is encouraging to you. Should any pastor begin to love sin, we are given permission to say that man is not one of us. 
And it would instill fear in the rest of the elders to keep a close eye on their doctrine and their teaching. It would certainly follow that the whole congregation would be brought to a sort of fear because they saw someone who was supposed to serve as an example to the flock that really wasn't ever one of us. This should promote a soft-hearted posture when we wish to heed the instruction of Scripture to keep humility in our hearts and hear the voice of the Lord today. Instead of hardening our hearts, we should make them soft towards our God. And this possibility of elders sinning is one reason that we need many pastors to lead our church. We need the ability to call out elders that might be sinning and not have a church that suddenly has no leader. The church needs several men leading her into holiness, and they need to be examples of what holiness looks like. So these verses, they show us the second method for how we honor our elders. And that is, we hold our elders and their accusers accountable. We need to be holy as our Lord is holy. So we cannot let an elder who is sinning remain in the church. And we definitely can't leave them in a position of authority. So though I do believe verse 20 is referring to publicly rebuking elders who are continually sinning, I do believe it follows that if there's a false charge against elders being in sin, that person would also need to be held accountable by the church. Just as we hold the door of accountability open for disciplining our leaders, that door remains open the opposite way for those who try to accuse our leaders falsely. So again, the second method for how we honor our elders by holding them accountable along with any false accusers. So let's turn to the rest of the chapter now, beginning in verse 21. These verses will show the manner in which Timothy is supposed to handle these issues with the elders. Paul opens up this section with a reminder of the weighty charge of leadership that Timothy must undertake. He reminds Timothy that everything he does is under the banner of heaven, in the presence of our God, of Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. So with this cosmic audience in view, Paul tells Timothy, do all this without prejudice. After all, Ephesians 3 says it's not really only the cosmic audience that's watching or observing the church's actions, but it also says that we are making the wisdom of God known to a watching world. This noble task of, of pastoring is one that holds great consequence. So Timothy must be sure that he is doing all things without prejudging. He must be impartial to those within the church. He must not ignore evidence from two or three witnesses about an elder who is in sin simply because it's inconvenient or because that elder was very prominent in the church and they might lose a contingency of members from their body because they side with that sinful elder. No, Timothy must hold all these instructions in accordance with the scriptures. So we too, church, we must follow the direction from Paul to Timothy here. When we see elders that rule well, we need to show them honor by respecting them and compensating them. We must not be partial in that honor. On the flip side, we also cannot ignore any evidences of sin against the elders because we love them and we want to avoid that conflict. We must be people that put aside prejudice, put on the lenses of faith, trusting that the Holy Spirit will guide us and direct our steps as we obey his instruction. Another thing that Timothy must do here is be slow to lay hands on others. So this phrase, that's directly referencing the appointment of elders. Instead of sharing in the sins of others who are perhaps appointing elders too quickly or without respect to the qualifications listed in chapter 3, 
he must hold elder candidates to the line, in line with those qualifications and observe them in a slow manner. When we use chapter 3 of 1 Timothy to determine if men are qualified for the office of elder, we cannot be prejudiced or partial, for the word of God is the objective truth that they must stand up against. The qualities listed there also in chapter 3 take time to observe in elder candidates. So Timothy cannot quickly appoint a man to the office of pastor. The scripture right here is exactly why Emmaus is very slow to appoint men to the office of elder. This process is never quick. Our pastors know that the character of a man must be observed over time, and many questions must be asked of him. This is why initial conversations about aspiring to this office uh, of elder all the way to elder candidacy is a very long on-ramp. Our elders take a great deal of time to frequently be in conversation about the men that aspire to this office and observing if they are qualified to be ones in authority over Christ's church here at Emmaus. So just as Timothy cannot be quick to appoint elders, he also must be pure, the scripture says. If you look at verse 23, I believe that verse is a direct application of what it means to be pure. As we saw in chapter 4, there were people falling into asceticism, meaning people in the church wanted to put things away from themselves as a sort of self-righteous behavior. Paul tells Timothy here that purity does not come from asceticism. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Instead, Timothy is called to be pure, so he must run away from asceticism or legalism regarding wine. The church ought to be quick on this note, because the point of this scripture is not about if you should be drinking wine or not. But the point here is for us to be pure, not to be a people that try to be self-righteous. But I will say this, be wise when it comes to alcohol. One thing I'll leave you to ask yourself is this, if you abstain from alcohol, why do you abstain? Is it because you are trying to be an ascetic and forego good things of the Lord in pursuit of a sort of self-righteousness? If so, I would plead with you to remember that you will not fulfill the law that you're putting on yourself. Only Christ can fulfill the law on your behalf. And you need to put off that yoke of slavish legalism that you're putting on yourself. Now, please hear me that I know that there are plenty of good reasons to abstain from alcohol. Continue being wise with abstaining and be good brothers and sisters that abstain alongside your weaker siblings that don't want to drink alcohol. But do not fall into asceticism or legalism by putting yokes of slavery on others that our Lord has not put on us. When Paul tells Timothy to be pure, he means for him to pursue purity and holiness the only way that's possible, to be united by Christ in faith. If we are united to Christ by faith, are we going to grow by putting on works of the flesh? Absolutely not. We must instead walk in step with the Spirit by faith. Beyond helping Timothy understand that he needs to stay away from asceticism, this parenthetical verse in verse 23 is Paul showing his affection for his dear son in the faith. He not only wants Timothy to be pure, but he also wants him to take care of himself. Pastors, your office that you're fulfilling comes with enough difficulties on its own. Take care of your bodies and avoid such ailments if you can. 
do not needlessly suffer. For you, church, the same sentiment appeals, applies to you as well. Don't needlessly suffer by following things that you're not bound to. Suffering is very normative for our life. You don't need to bring suffering upon yourself. So avoid the suffering that you can by taking care of your body. As we look at the rest of the chapter in verses 24 to 25, we see that patience is also necessary on Timothy's part. These verses talk about how good works and sins are sometimes obvious, and other times they take a long time to become obvious. Again, this type of patience is why Emmaus' elders are slow to observe the lies of us who aspire to be elders. This is the aim of Paul's charge to Timothy, but Paul does also want Timothy to be broadly patient with the whole church that he's with. It's part of our task as church members to be patient with one another as we pursue holiness. It's, it's a church, it's right to point out the good works that are obvious. That way people are being encouraged. It's also our job as members to confess sins to one another, making those things obvious that might otherwise take a long time to become exposed. So take time in your community groups to encourage and exhort one another when it comes to good works and with sin. This last portion of chapter 5 shows us the third method for how we honor elders, and that is to be pure and to be patient. After Paul instructs on how to live honorably with elders in chapter 5, he moves to a different authority structure here in chapter 6. Here Paul introduces a topic that quite frankly shocks us as we see these words written to bond servants, or your translation might say slaves. I'm sure that when you hear this word, you initially picture slavery that has been documented here in the United States. So when you see Paul's words that tell bondservants to remain as they are and also tell them how to honor their masters, I'm sure you have questions. But before I talk about Paul's exhortation to slaves, it's important to set the context for slavery in the first century as it was quite different than what we have in mind. Slavery in the first century here was certainly burdensome and undesirable, no doubt about it. Yet it was somewhat universal across the globe at this point in time. Some estimates actually say the church in Ephesus they might have seen at least a third of their population uh, be, be slaves. The most stark difference to what we know of slavery in America compared to this time is slavery was not based around race or ethnicity. Instead, slavery is used with people groups that have been conquered by opposing nations. These conquering nations were quite impartial to who they would enslave, and there was no that uh, these conquering nations were impartial to whoever they might be able to enslave. Another major difference is that slaves could one day purchase their freedom, though this was a difficult task. Even then, sometimes after purchasing their freedom, slaves could re-enter that same relationship as more of an employer and employee relationship. So instead of being slave and master after purchasing their freedom, they're now client and patron. So they both still have a great need for one another, but in a different manner than before. The last difference that I'll point out is that slaves could also own their own property. So if they uh, invested their wages rightly, they could secure their freedom. The main idea Paul has here in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that he's instructing slaves how to glorify and honor God in their current state. 
His aim was not to cause an abolition of slavery across the globe, but to teach slaves how they could live as Christians where they are currently. Even still, it is not as if Paul was against them becoming free. Rather, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul writes, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Paul certainly permits them to obtain their freedom if they can, but he knows it's a difficult task. So he is more concerned with telling them how to live in their current state than trying to show them how to become a free citizen. These two verses show us that we need to honor those in authority, even when it's difficult. So wherever you are at today, as one who lives under authority, this passage is teaching us to serve in a godly manner wherever you find yourself. Paul's focus is to encourage slaves to be submissive to their masters so that they would preserve the reputation of God's name and the teaching of his word. If they were slaves that were simply not submissive, if they were insubordinate slaves, it would profane the name of our God. So for us today, we can rejoice that slavery in this context is largely abolished and praise God for that. But if you are today in a difficult relationship or you're in a time of life that is filled with hardship, you can take heart that you do not necessarily have to change that fact about you today. Instead, the Lord has shown you ways to remain faithful. Since slaves were called to honor authority in their day under much worse conditions, we as Christians are meant to be submissive to our leaders and authorities in our day so that God's name may be honored. I am not saying that, if you, should, that you must stay in a particularly difficult environment, but I am saying the scripture here is focused on being faithful, being godly, and being honorable so that our Lord and his teaching is not reviled, but rather that your service may be a witness. Lastly, I know that there are no specific instructions here to masters, but if you are someone who's in an authority position, you know full well from the scriptures that you are not supposed to be like worldly leaders who lord over those below you. You instead need to be displaying a certain gospel-saturated leadership with your authority. Be a servant to those underneath your authority, just as Christ came to serve. So today's scripture showed that we must live honorably with our elders and to live honorably with those in authority, even when it's difficult. After hearing these things, perhaps you're feeling like you're in a difficult situation and find it hard to live in a godly manner. Or maybe you find it incredibly hard to understand why we are called to trust elders who could easily abuse their authority. I get it. It is easy to be skeptical of those in authority. Or could it be the burden of trying to live a pure life is simply just overwhelming you and weighing you down? If you think you can work these things on your own, you are quite wrong. Listen to Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You cannot live honorably with our elders, nor live honorably with those in authority by your own works. You need the one who came as a servant, the one that died on the cross for your sins. If you have believed in Christ by faith, then you can walk in him and the good works that he has set before you. 
It is through His power that you can do the things that have been written here in today's Scripture. Remember also that the one who has ultimate authority over all things, our Lord Jesus Christ, is also the head of this church. He is the most trustworthy authority, and in His good pleasure, He has given us authority structures here on earth, both in the church and those outside the church. This same Jesus is the one who authoritatively instituted this meal for us at the table. We come to this table to remember that Christ laid down his body as a sacrifice for us and shed blood for our sins. He came not to be served, but to serve. Just as we remember that he died for our sins, we remember also that he rose for our justification. We partake in this meal to remember that we are united to Christ and that he has perfectly fulfilled the law on your behalf. He is the only way that we can keep the instructions that are laid out here in his word. So today, if you are united to Christ by faith, after I pray, you can come down one aisle at a time down here on the right side of the theater and take the elements and then turn up the opposite side and find your seat and commune with our Lord. If you have not yet believed in Christ, I ask you to remain in your seat for the time being. This meal is for those that are adopted sons and daughters of Christ. Now, if you're wanting to put your faith in Jesus Christ and have some questions, we'll have some pastors up here if you want to talk through those things afterward. With that, let's pray. Lord, you are good to bring us together today by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for purchasing us and having our salvation planned from the foundations of the world. Remind us today that we are yours, the sheep of your flock, and with you as our shepherd, we lack nothing. Help us to trust that you are the one true authority over all things, and that in your wisdom, you have appointed authorities in our life that are for your glory and our good. May your spirit remind us of our adoption as sons and daughters as we partake in your supper, remembering and proclaiming that you have come to fulfill the law, you have died, and you rose to the right hand of the Father, and that you will one day return again to have every knee bowed down to you, our King. So today, cause us to walk in all purity by honoring our elders and other authorities, all for your glory and the preservation of your teaching. Thank you for hearing our prayers and reminding us of who we are in Christ. Amen. Emmaus, come and take Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.